This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me here again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald. This is my show, Living Fearlessly, with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership is 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, I am joined by yet another phenomenal guest. My guest today is a gentleman by the name of Mitch Horowitz. And before I turn it over to Unscripted Dialogue, as I always do, I'm just going to plug a little bit about who Mitch is for all the listening audience. So who is Mitch Horowitz? Well, what I can tell you about Mitch is that he is a writer and publisher with a lifelong interest in man's search for meaning. The Penn Award-winning author of Occult America and One Simple Idea, Mitch has written on everything from the war on the witches to the secret life of Ronald Reagan for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Salon, and Time. The Washington Post says Mitch treats esoteric ideas and movements with an even-handed intellectual studiousness that is too often lost in today's raised voice discussions. He is also the voice of popular audiobooks, including Alcoholics Anonymous and the Jefferson Bible, and host of the web series Origin Superstitions. Mitch is vice president and executive editor at Tarcher Perigi, a division of Penguin Random House. So, Mitch, I want to say thank you so very much for the gift of your time today. This is such a treat. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. Very glad to be here. Well, it's lovely having you here, and I'm so glad that we were able to work this out. And because uh, clearly by your bio, I can tell that you're a very busy gentleman, and you've got your hands in a lot of different pots, which makes you very interesting to me. And um, I'm always quite selective with the types of guests I invite on to radio. And I know that we're going to be talking specifically uh, about um, – I'm going to let you take it over. What are we going to talk about today, Mitch? Well, we're going to talk about the life and ideas of Neville Goddard probably one of the most fascinating figures to emerge from modern spiritual culture and a name that probably delights some of your listeners and others are scratching their heads saying, who in the world is Neville Goddard? But they'll be hearing a lot more about him, I suspect. Absolutely. Well, why don't we start first before we turn it over to that specific subject matter? I'd like to know a little bit more about you. I'm always interested in the inception of my guest journey and what kind of propelled them onto the path of wherever it is we now know them to be uh, known for, whether it be a household name, whether it be talking specifically about somebody's particular passions, what they're endeavoring to do. So how did you get on this path of being and doing exactly who you are and what you're doing, Mitch? Well, I began my interest in the metaphysical as a little kid uh, around the age of eight or nine years old. I was fascinated with folklore and superstition and mythology and growing up in the borough of Queens on the outer reaches of New York City. I would take out books from the public library all the time on those subjects. I was particularly interested in Pennsylvania Dutch superstition and folklore and such, and I was fascinated with the daily newspaper horoscopes and other things and wondered, where did all this stuff come from? What's the roots of all this stuff? And my childhood fascination stayed with me into adulthood, and I was fortunate enough, something that I would wish for everybody listening, to reignite and re-encounter my childhood passions uh, in adulthood, I became an editor with a publishing company that specializes in the metaphysical, and I became a historian myself of mystical, occult, and esoteric movements. And I always describe myself as a believing historian or a participatory historian. These things are not just ideas that I like to document, but they are commitments, personal commitments that I participate in myself. So I, I kind of occupy the worlds of both a seeker 
uh, and a documenter uh, and someone who writes the historicism of esoteric and mystical movements. Beautiful. Well, you're really resonating with me and, and no doubt with uh, much of the listening audience because the, the premise of the network and my host show uh, specifically, it's all about relinquishing fear, embracing passion, and it's really about digging deep within yourself and getting very clear. It's all about consciousness, uh, subconsciousness. And I'm really big in the world of visualization, manifestation, and uh, and even quantum physics. And it's a very interesting subject when you talk about specifically the electrons and that all being navigated by energy. And this is why Neville, and I want to talk to you about Neville, is, uh, you know, he was so ahead of his time, was he not? He really was. And Neville was born in... Uh, the West Indies on the island of Barbados in 1905, and he, he came to the U.S. to study theater and to make a career for himself as a stage performer, but he quickly found that his real interest was in metaphysics, and he basically arrived at one core principle, which he explored in all of his lectures and articles and books, which is that the human imagination is God, that your imagination is literally the creator, uh, and that scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, is actually a metaphor or an allegory for the individual's inner development, for the individual's exercise of his or her thoughts as a creative power, and the ultimate realization of this in the story of Christ himself. So he didn't view scripture as a record of anything that ever actually happened in physical history. He didn't view any individual figure in scripture as a man or woman who ever actually walked the earth, but he saw scripture as a great allegory of your own inner development. And every time you encounter the term God or Jehovah or Christ in scripture, in Neville's philosophy, that's a metaphor for your own mind. He -hmm. saw scripture as a book of symbolism. And he could argue for this in very simple, elegant, beautiful terms that made it seem fresh every time he took up the subject. And early on, he talked about ideas that comported with quantum theory at a time when quantum theory was still somewhat in its infancy and certainly had not experienced any of the kind of popularizations that we encounter today. So Neville would talk, for example, about the idea that we exist, all of us, we all exist in these kind of serial universes of infinite possibilities. And we don't so much manifest the future through our thoughts, but we select the future through where we direct our thoughts and attentions. And that point of view is kind of a mystical analog to some of the theorizing that goes on within quantum theory. Uh, There are some quantum theorists who speak of uh, the multiple worlds model, that is to say the belief that because subatomic matter is apparently affected by the perspective or the choices of a conscious observer, we are all the time living within an infinite network of varying possibilities depending upon our perspective, our point of view, our selections. That was Neville's philosophy exactly. But to put it in the simplest terms, his basic principle was your imagination is God. And he meant that in the most literal sense. So, for example, if you follow Neville's reasoning, I would say to every one of your listeners, this voice that you're hearing is not Mitch talking about, you know, some philosopher who died in 1972, but it's you. These are your ideas. This is your perspective. This is your viewpoint. And for whatever reason, at this moment in time, you were prepared to hear it. So what you will encounter in the teachings of Neville, if you choose to check them out, is... Your own ideas, your own voice, your own psyche. Neville felt absolutely adamant about this. There was nothing uh, metaphorical or indirect about it. He was very concrete that the individual and the individual imagination 
is the God of Scripture. And everything that you visualize, that you see, or that you feel emotively is outpictured, is concretized in the world around you, including my voice that you're hearing right now. So he would say that uh, I, the speaker, am rooted in you as you are ultimately rooted in God, uh, that this is all a product of your own thoughts. Lovely. Well, what I really took away from the book, I mean, there were so many takeaways and breakthroughs for me in uh, the reading of the book that was kindly sent to me by the publishing house. So I want to thank you very much and for your team behind the scenes for making that possible. Um, Yes, but, uh, you know, when I parallel, when we talk about the thought leaders of today, and certainly Neville's work has impacted and resonated with many people in their own teachings, their own understandings, their own learnings. And I was really quite fascinated with all the reference uh, to I am, because that's very huge when we make self-proclamations and walking into your preferred state of existence and being every single day and knowing that the energy that uh, we choose, and I do believe there's choice uh, to this as well, you know, we can choose no matter what our certain set of circumstances are, to what degree we then take that, the lesson, the message, and go forward, and really mm-hmm. go forward. And I talk a lot about this with guests on radio who are very much uh, in this, um, not only, it's not just a, it's a line of work, but it's, it's just, it's a choice. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of being. It's, it's incorporated into your DNA. Yes. And, uh, you know, so when we talk about the self proclamations, as many people will cite in their, their books of today, uh, you know, I, I have, I am dot, 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 whatever I am is for me all over my wall. And that's my 3D visionary board. And, you know, mm-hmm. so that's, you know, I make those statements every single day and I'm not unique in that aspect. There's many people who walk uh, our path. It, it's, it's part of their daily rituals. It's part of their mm-hmm. daily mantras. So, mm-hmm. you know, where did that, in your research and, and your expertise with Neville's work, um, where did that, that mindset come from? That's, that's a wonderful question. Neville described, his development and his thought process as really unfolding from personal revelation. Now, he did talk about having a mysterious teacher, a figure named Abdullah, who was a a turbaned uh, Afro-Caribbean rabbi who was originally from Ethiopia. And I've done some research into the question of Abdullah because people are always asking me, is this a a real figure? Is this a a metaphor? Is this a device? You know, what's this all about? And I, I do believe... Abdullah was a real figure. He may have been a composite of different teachers, uh, and I write about this in the biographical essay that's included in the book, At Your Command, which is the the book you were mentioning. That's a republication of Neville's first book from 1939. And he spoke very fondly and vividly about the figure of Abdullah, who served as his mentor for five years. But throughout the expanse of his career, Neville would also say that his philosophy came to him through a revelatory reading of Scripture. Scripture was Neville's primary reference source. When he got older, he would cite uh, William Blake as a kind of an artistic a cohort who had similar visions and ideas to him and and I think that was that was accurate and that was right and he would draw on other source material I mean he would quote from um, scientific studies news articles the works of Shakespeare other classical works he would analyze novels like the Count of Monte Cristo as being mm. metaphysical parallel parallels to what he was talking about. But very often if you said to him, look, you know, what's your background? What's your education? Where does this come from? He would say personal revelation. And Neville felt that he experienced as he grew and as he developed a revelatory and mystical understanding of Scripture and came to see Scripture as the unfolding of the individual story, starting in the Old Testament and and reaching through the crucifixion in the new, Scripture is the story as told by ancient mystics in symbolic form of the workings of the mind and the ultimate realization of the individual in the form of Christ who is crucified and comes to the realization that 
man is God clothed in human flesh. And Neville would say, look, as I had this revelation, you will also have this revelation. We're all rooted in God. We're all God clothed in human flesh. And that any story that I would tell you about myself is a story that really emanates from you. You know, Neville was quite literal about this, that uh, every individual is uh, the creator as as represented by symbol in scripture. So he said that his realization came to him through an unfolding of inner understanding and that every individual would have that that same experience because we are placed here in this apparently material world, he taught, to exercise our powers of imagination. And as we continue to exercise these powers of imagination, we not only come into the circumstances and lives that we devise for ourselves, but that ultimately, ultimately, and sometimes over the course of several different iterations of our existence, ultimately we come to realize that we are each Christ clothed in human form, and that realization is the purpose of existence. It's creation experiencing first its formative powers and later experiencing itself, and the individual comes to understand that his or her nature is not grounded in this apparently material world, but is grounded in in God the Creator. So he described his journey as one that everybody would experience and and is experiencing. Well, let me ask you, based on all this then, Mitch, um, you know, from your research, uh, because again, I I would consider you an expert on this subject matter and of Neville uh, specifically. So given that he was light years ahead of his time, given that he was a visionary, given that he was very enlightened and very self-aware, how during that period of time of him talking about this, writing about this, speaking about this, how was he received back in his time by people? It's an interesting question. Neville never had fame, never had celebrity, never had a huge audience. He would show up very surprisingly in some places where you wouldn't expect to find him. There was a long profile of Neville in the New Yorker magazine in 1945, which I was quite surprised to discover when I was doing my research. I, In my book, One Simple Idea, which is a history and analysis of the positive thinking movement, I write a lot about Neville, and I researched some of his claims, and I found that some of his claims about his own biography do stand up to scrutiny. Um, he claimed that He was in the Army at the height of the Second World War. He was older than the other draftees. He had a wife and daughter in Greenwich Village in New York City. He wanted to be back home, and he claimed to use powers of visualization to gain an honorable discharge from the military. And I thought, well, that can't be true. Why would the military discharge a man in perfect health at the height of the Second World War. Now, I can't tell you precisely what went on in the most intimate trappings of Neville's mind, but the military, I, I found military records and spoke to a U.S. military spokesman, and I, I write about this in one simple idea, and, and I reference it also in the essay in the book At Your Command. And the timeline matches up with exactly what Neville described. And I asked an Army spokesman, well, look, you know, why would this man have received an honorable discharge from the military at the height of the Second World War? And I was told, well, according to the existing records, he had to return to a vital civilian occupation. And I said, well, his occupation was as a metaphysical lecturer. So in what sense – would that be considered by the military to be uh, vital to the war effort? And right. he said, well, I'd like to tell you more, but unfortunately, Mr. Goddard's records were destroyed in a fire in the early 1970s at one of the Army's major uh, record warehouses. So what records we do have uh, conform to the timeline Neville supplied 
about his own life. So what I found was that, you know, Neville made some fantastic claims about himself that actually had uh, a concrete basis in reality. Um, again, I can't tell you what was going on in the intimate trappings of his own experience, mm-hmm. but I can tell you that I've never come across any reference in his lectures or his books that suggested a deviation from uh, the records as they're available. So I found that intriguing. Absolutely. Well, again, I, I know that you can't speak for Neville, past or present. Um, you know, you've certainly done your research. You're very well versed on the subject and of the man himself. But if you were to um, speak to the degree that you feel comfortable uh, suggesting what Neville's insights of today might be, if we talk about the culture of today, if we talk about things that have happened uh, since his passing in 1972, I believe it was, correct? That's right. That's yeah. right, yes. So, you know, when we look at things like 9-11, when we look at the, the current political culture, when we look at what's been happening with the environment, when we look at things like that, what is the application or what is the theory or the thought process in terms of being the conduit between Neville's philosophies, his revelations to the uh, what we can say tangibly we understand our society and our culture and how people think of today? Yeah, that's a wonderful question, and frankly, it's a question that I wrestle with all the time. The last thing I would want to present to you or to your listeners is that I'm somehow the man with the plan, and I've figured out how to apply Neville's philosophy to all areas of life because I wrestle with it. Now, Mm -hmm. if Neville were here, um, and I think probably according to his philosophy, one could say he is here, but but using that uh, as a as a sort of a uh, form of rhetoric, if he were here, I would think he would say, look, you know, ancient scripture is filled with all kinds of violence and despair and tragedy. It runs throughout the Old Testament. Uh, if humanity or if the individual entertains thoughts of violence and despair, that will be outpictured into the world in as much as such episodes are recorded in scripture itself. So he probably wouldn't express any surprise at all that the coarseness within ourselves, and there is lots, is outpicturing into coarseness and tragedy outside of ourselves. Now, one of the things that I wrestle with is whether we as individuals do in fact live under one ultimate law of mind, or whether there are multiple laws and forces that we live under, or if Neville is correct, that consciousness is the ultimate arbiter of life, I think it's important to understand that even if one shares that outlook, even if one shares that conclusion, that doesn't mean that everything becomes simple, that cause and effect suddenly becomes this very straight line between points A and B. Because one of the things that I've been writing about lately and and working with myself as an individual seeker is this question of, well, what would it mean in my life, in your life, if consciousness was the ultimate arbiter, was an ultimate law? We experience laws in very different ways depending upon our circumstances. You could refer to gravity as a natural law, but you're going to experience gravity very different here on Earth than you would on the moon where you would be much lighter or on the planet Jupiter, where you would experience gravity as this crushing physical force, because there's also a law of mass, and the law of mass determines how we're going to affect gravity. So we're weightless where there is no mass in outer space, but we're weighted down on a planet like Jupiter that's enormously massive, more so than Earth. The law of gravity hasn't changed. It's consistent as the law must be. But we are going to experience that law differently based on other circumstances. So if we say that mind is an ultimate law and that it must work consistently as a law has to, That doesn't mean that we're always going to experience it the same way at the same time. And that doesn't mean that we are entirely at liberty, at least in our daily experience, from other influences. I mean, these bodies decay. These bodies go away. Uh, So the question of whether we undergo or experience other laws and forces to a degree is answered by mortality itself. 
Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, one could say mortality is purposeful. One could have a, a philosophical or religious outlook on that, as I think many of us do. But that doesn't change the fact that under no circumstances are we going to elude what we understand as normative physical mortality. That doesn't mean Neville was wrong. It just means that there are a complexity of laws and forces that we still have to live under in the here and now, regardless of mind as the ultimate arbiter of reality. So my wish and the challenge that I live with myself and that I would put to to you and to your listeners is to experiment with these ideas. I don't think Neville came to give us a dogma. He came to give us articles of experimentation. And he would always say to listeners, to readers, I hope you will be bold enough to test me. You know, he would challenge the individual. Experiment with this. Test it. Try it. See what you find. And I think that's how we best engage these teachings, not by trying to come up with a conclusive certainty, but rather a process of experimentation and see what you find and, and share what you find. I love hearing from people who tell me about their experiments with his ideas because I'm experimenting with them. And I think mm-hmm. that's the highest thing a person can do. Absolutely. Well, that's a good segue into my next question. And I have sol- simultaneous questions that are burning to come out of my mouth at the same time uh, <laughs> for you. So, so what I would like to know too uh, from you, Mitch, is – how would you describe your own mindset in the way that it would be similar or different from Neville's? Mm. Well, I don't speak or think in some of the terms of certainty that Neville did, and that's not a criticism of his, of him, but Neville had this exuberant confidence that comes from the absolute certainty that one has found the key to the door, so to speak, that unlocks the mysteries. And if you read Neville, you'll discover not a dogmatic voice, but a very elegant, gently confident voice. And I respect that, and I bow my head in front of it. But my thought system is different. I don't have this kind of absolute certainty that Neville hit all the right notes in all the right ways at all the right times. I am, as I said, an experimenter with his ideas. I love his ideas, and he's one of the most influential people in my life. And he better be because actually I have a tattoo of him on my left forearm. So, you know, it would be kind of problematic if I was walking around with a tattoo of somebody I wasn't into. So, um I love the man. I simply love the man. And he's one of the most influential figures in my life. And he's responsible for so many good things in my life. But, you know, in the same way that Jacob wrestled with the angel, I also wrestle with his ideas. And I think he would have wanted me and others to wrestle with his ideas. We we live under such a network of circumstances and the question of whether every circumstance that you or I experience, and you've named some tragic ones, are the direct result of mind, for me, is a very tough question. There are people who experience terrible suffering in this world that we in the West know very little about. When people are killed in a massively destructive hurricane in the Philippines or dismembered and horribly injured in a terrible earthquake in Haiti or fall victims to a war that they wanted nothing whatsoever to do with in Syria, you have to fall to your knees in front of that. There are just no easy answers for that. And I feel very strongly that none of us should be analyzing another person's pain. I don't like when I hear people in the New Thought movement, and I'm part of the New Thought movement myself, 
give these glib answers about 9-11 or the Holocaust or the civil war in Syria or natural disasters or disease on other continents that they've never visited. Speak about your own experience. I only want to know about your own experience. Most of us haven't been involved in tragedies on those ultimate scales. I want to hear from people who have, but I don't want to hear from spiritual teachers or seekers or thinkers who rush in to proclaim confidently exactly what's going on and say something about karma or say something about reincarnation or say something about the frequency upon which the victim was vibrating to. Talk to me about yourself. Because to talk about things that you haven't experienced, especially to talk about another person's suffering, it's really just to throw a stone. You know, it's just to throw a stone at that individual. I don't want to hear about 9-11 from anybody who hasn't experienced a tragedy on that scale. We need to draw upon our own circumstances. That kind of inner empiricism is really the only means of exploration that we have on the spiritual path. So I want people to speak to me from experience. I love that. I love that answer and I love that insight. Um, so another thing that I would love to know from you, Mitch, then, you know, without, you know, cause I believe, and you know, I don't want to contradict what you just said with respect sure, no. to, you know, talk about your own experience, but yeah. in terms of looking at, you know, the mind of, Neville, and then if I think mm-hmm. about the mind of an Aldous, Aldous Huxley or a George yeah. Orwell, you know, yeah. what, what do you see as being similarities between the three of them? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Well, I, I mean, they were all great experimenters. Uh, Orwell always had the question before him, what is a good way to live? His writing was more concerned with systems that men and women created here on Earth. Huxley tended to believe that what goes on here on Earth has a counterpart or a correlate in an unseen world, in a spiritual world. And I think that Neville thought in the same way, you know, his concern was what are laws under which men and women live that determine whether life is going to be beautiful or is going to be chaotic. Huxley, Orwell, both shared that concern. Orwell from a more materialist direction, Huxley from a more spiritual, and certainly Neville from a more spiritual. Orwell believed that we imprison ourselves through certain systems, primarily the use of evasive, indirect language that is really meant to sort of skirt the truth and that eventually we get so caught up in this evasive, indirect language that we create entire edifices, governmental systems, corporate power systems that are incapable of speaking to and acknowledging and recognizing truth. And as these sham systems that we create uh, devolve, we wind up living under circumstances of fascism or imprisonment. Huxley, I think, would have made the same point and said the sham systems come from our own false consciousness, our own lack of awareness about who we really are, about the power that is released by our own thoughts for good and for ill. And I think Neville was part of that same conversation, although he had an ardently, ardently counter-materialist view of the world. I'm not sure George Orwell would have known how to deal with a Neville Goddard because (laughs) Neville denied the existence of earthly events so much as everything that played out within the seemingly material sphere was the result of a thought pattern, maybe a thought pattern of one individual or maybe a thought pattern of a a crisscrossing network of individuals. So all these figures were concerned with root causes, and that's really the great modern question. What is the root cause of events? That is what political figures wanted to know. That is what Albert Einstein wanted to know. That is what Freud and Jung wanted to know. Where do motivations come from? Where do root causes come from? For Freud, the answer was childhood trauma. For Karl Marx, the answer was these kind of unseen 
economic shifts and frictions that pit people against one another and result in these ultimate and, in his view, uh, scientifically predictable outcomes. For Einstein, uh, the belief was, the theory was, that the outer world that we live in uh, only seems this orderly, linear, material thing, but there are laws of time and space that are completely bending and, and subjective uh, relative to our material understanding. So, and, you know, for a figure like Louis Pasteur, for example, uh, who devised germ theory, the root cause of all disease are, are, are germs and microbes. So all the great modern thinkers, all the great modern thinkers believed in this concept of unseen causes. That's the modernist mindset, and that's essentially the modernist mindset since, since the, the, the theories of, of Isaac Newton. You know, the idea is, we can determine what's going on in our lives by looking at these great unseen forces, whether you call it gravity or germs or trauma or um, some sort of uh, political or economic frictions that underscore everything going on in outward life. The name of the game is the presence of some kind of hidden force and that if we can detect that force, we can understand and reorganize life, presumably for the better. That was the modernist challenge. So Neville is part of that challenge, but he rejects the idea of a material world. He would say, well, mm -hmm. yes, there is an unseen force and that unseen force is the ever-operative power of your mind, your powers of visualization, your emotional powers. And he would ask, how are you using them today? How are you using them this very moment, because whatever you are fixed upon in terms of your mind's eye and in terms of your emotionalized thought states, that's exactly what you're creating. So Neville was probably the most radical of the modernist philosophers. He would say, yes, right on. There are hidden causes, but the hidden causes are your own thoughts. And what does Mitch Horowitz subscribe to? I subscribe to Neville's point of view but fitfully, uncomfortably, sometimes with a great deal of uncertainty. I do believe, I do believe that our thoughts are causative. I do believe that our emotional states, our mental visualizations absolutely have a concrete impact on what happens to us in the world. I do believe and I think there are ways to demonstrate a non-physical dimension of life. And Neville is a hero to me because he went further and said, well, what can we do about that? How can we apply this non-physical dimension of life? But I am uncertain as to whether he was correct that we live under only the force of law or whether, in fact, we live under multiple laws and forces. I tend to believe we live under multiple laws and forces. Again, physical mortality alone tells us that. Or, if Neville was right and mind is the ultimate arbiter of existence, as I was speaking before about gravity and its effects on us and how they can change and how the effects of gravity are relative, we can experience a law in very different ways depending upon the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And there's no easy straight line between point A and point B. Cause and effect can be very complicated. So even if Neville is ultimately correct, and I am dedicating a lot of my life to experimenting along these lines, that correctness may not make life seem entirely simple all of a sudden. That correctness may introduce us to a set of circumstances and a cause and effect model that is even more complicated than what we feel we experience right now. Well, let's not forget you have a tattoo to boot, right? That's right. <laughs> some people didn't like that I got my Neville tattoo. There are some traditionalists who feel that, you know, you're turning Neville into the golden calf. You're turning Neville into a, you know, uh, some sort of an image that we're going to start to see on, you know, mugs and refrigerator magnets and so on. And, you know, the truth is, I think that uh, 
we're also here to enjoy life in some ways. You know, we're here to enjoy life in some ways. And if it gives me pleasure, if it gives me joy to wear Neville on my arm or to wear Neville on a T-shirt, I think he would have smiled and winked at that. He wasn't a man of this kind of oppressive seriousness. He was a man who enjoyed life. He liked to drink. Um, you know, he drank mm-hmm. quite a bit, actually. He said in one lecture, um, <laughs> he said, smoking, I never got. Drinking, that I got. You know, <laughs> he was a big drinker. He had this wonderful, crisp British accent. He liked to drink. He liked to go to the theater. There was a student of his who won a fashion award at one time in the late 1960s, and the fashion award was called the Lulu. It was the fashion equivalent of the Oscar, and I remember him asking the woman to come up on stage with him and say, show everyone the Lulu. And, you know, he he enjoyed life. He wasn't an oppressive figure. He listened to music. He drank. He enjoyed good meals. Uh, he enjoyed going to the opera. He enjoyed going to the theater. Um, he certainly had a lot of relationships in his life. He had about five divorces behind him. So, you know, this was a man who was not, he did not live a monastic existence, I can assure you. So I would say that he would probably wink and he would probably say, you know, well, if you have a tattoo, make sure it's a good one. You know, that was his, that was his outlook. There was a lightness about him, not an oppressiveness. So I think we can all take it easy a little bit too. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this, Mitch, and I'm not quite sure why I'm asking you. Just intuitively, I feel the need to ask. Have you yeah. ever had uh, a near-death experience personally? No, I haven't. Uh, I've had lots of harrowing, strange dreams, including very vivid dreams. In fact, um, according to a certain Kabbalistic teaching, this particular month uh, of December that we're in right now is a period of time that corresponds with uh, having very vivid dreams. Uh, the sections of the Torah that correspond to this month are sections that contain most of the references to dreams in the Old Testament. So I've had some pretty harrowing dreams recently, but no, I have not had a near-death experience. Okay, that's interesting. Now, if you had the opportunity to sit down and talk to Neville one-on-one, what would you what would you want to know? What would you wish to ask? Thank you for that question. I think about that quite a bit. I would wish to ask him about the question of ethics as we're working with his ideas because if Neville's challenge was, first of all, you have to know what you really want, and he would tell people that desire alone is sacred. If yours is the mind of God, then how could your desires be corrupt? But the truth is, I have had desires, and I have at times acted on desires that have been wrong insofar as they may have hurt me, or they may have hurt someone I love, or they may have hurt another person. I think we all have to acknowledge such experiences in our lives. And I would say to Neville, what about ethics? If you're telling me that my desire in itself is sacred because... If my mind is God, if your mind is God, how could something corrupt emanate? You know, he would say that desire itself is the highest source of life communicating with you. That's a very alluring idea. That's a very alluring idea. But we're fragile beings, and this is a fragile world in which we live. And if I act on every desire mentally that comes to me, I am convinced and uh, that I would leave a certain degree of destruction in my wake. So are we not also taught by Scripture that we have to live by certain ethical codes? The codes laid down in the Beatitudes, for example, seem to me the finest that have ever reached humanity, the simplest, the most sublime, the most direct. And I would want to ask, Neville, about the question of ethics, and are we not also given in Scripture, along with a metaphor of our own unfolding, a set of guardrails that protect us and protect other people as we are experiencing our unfolding, and do not 
the Ten Commandments, do not the Beatitudes, do not the ethical teachings of Christ represent guardrails for the individual as he or she is experimenting with his own godlike nature. So I'd like to know specifically what he would say about that. Interesting. Interesting. Does he ever come through for you in your dreams? Not that I can remember. There may be dreams I've had where he's appeared that I haven't remembered. He hasn't come through for me in dreams. Um, I do a kind of visualize conversations with him from time to time. And uh, I'm looking at a portrait of him on my office wall right now that was drawn by an artist, wonderful artist, named Tim Bota. It's very lifelike. It's very vivid. And I think... Uh, I think I understand some of what Neville might say in response to some of my questions. I would love to have had the experience of knowing him. He died in 1972. Mm -hmm. Of all the metaphysical figures that I've studied, if there was one person I could meet, I think it would be Neville because I have been able to confirm that he never, at least to my scrutiny, exaggerated anything in terms of his outer life, his outer story, in his lectures, his books, his speeches. He described fantastic things, such as his honorable discharge from the army, and the historical record conforms to it. There he was, you know, back on the lecture circuit, speaking as a metaphysical lecturer, what the army called his vital civilian occupation <laughs> in, in, the, in the mid to late 1940s. There he was being profiled in the New Yorker magazine uh, at a time when, in fact, he wasn't really very well known. Uh, most people in the spiritual culture even today don't know who Neville is, although his name is spreading. So there are so many aspects of his story that are vivid and real and confirmable. My wish would be, my wish would be to meet the man himself and to just be in the presence of the man himself. I walked the same streets that he walked. He lived in uh, Greenwich Village here in New York City where my own office is. I have stood in front of the apartment building where he lived. Um, I've looked upon Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village, uh, the place that he would have uh, looked out on, the place that he would have strolled through. And it's kind of a thrill to to know that you can kind of walk in the same footsteps and see the same street scenes, more or less, that mm -hmm. somebody you admire had seen. But uh, my great wish would be to um, have met him and gotten a feel for the man himself and be able to have some of these discussions with him. Well, not knowing entirely uh, your own – I mean, I know what you uh, – I know to the degree that you're enamored by this gentleman. I know to the degree that you study him and, and to the degree that he's had so much profound impact on your life. Um, you know, do you believe on a, a deep spiritual level that if you do believe in reincarnation that you may have existed within the same time frame of, of, of him being alive? Energy well, it's an interesting question. Um, it's a very, very interesting question. Sometimes you feel such a great affinity for uh, a historic figure or just for some ordinary everyday person who you're aware of who lived at another time that it, it does beg certain questions. I, I really don't know. I, I, I feel very blessed and I, I feel a sense of providential good fortune at having come into contact with this man and his ideas, they have been formative for me. Uh, I first came into, I, I first heard the name Neville in the summer of 2003. I was interviewing the Major League Baseball pitcher Barry Zito, who uses various metaphysical methods as part of his training regimen, including the ideas of Neville. And as he and I were talking. Barry said to me, wow, you must really be into Neville. And I said, who? You know, I'd never heard of him. And he said, you never heard of him? I can't believe it. And he started telling me about Neville. And right away I went out and I bought one of Neville's books, a book called Resurrection. 
and mm-hmm. I still have the heavily marked up copy that I bought at that time. <laughs> and I just fell in love with the man. You know, I felt there was such a depth and an intellectual seriousness about him and an and, and elegance in how he expressed these incredibly radical ideas, ideas that make a lot of people want to argue or run away from them or deny them. And yet in his own person, he could express these things with such a – just such an elegant and persuasive simplicity and – it's funny having that experience. It's a very funny experience when you encounter a figure from the past with whom you feel such a complete and total affinity. Mm-hmm. I would say that I've felt that for Neville more strongly than anybody else. Uh, so I can't I can't speak to it much more than that. But I feel providentially lucky in some way to have encountered a figure with whom I feel such a bond. Lovely. Well, Mitch, unfortunately, I'm always cognizant of time, and and these interviews always go way too quickly for my liking, but I would really love to have you back on at a later time if that's something you might be receptive to. I'd be delighted, absolutely delighted. I really appreciated your questions. Yes. Well, I really appreciate the gift of your time, and I appreciate your insights, and I appreciate you uh, educating us more so on the subject of Neville and, and, and truly I mean, you know this inside and out, and uh, feel free to let me see a picture of your tattoo. I'd love to see the tattoo. <laughs> I will send you one for sure. <laughs> okay. Happy to. Um, but I just want to say, Mitch, I find you really fascinating, you know, because for people who would be – for anybody who's really, truly passionate about something, and, I mean, you're really passionate about something that I think is very brilliant in itself, the topic, the subject, uh, the subject of Neville, the way Neville thinks – uh, you know, really exploring different ideas on a bigger, broader, deeper scale. And so although we learned a lot about Neville, which I appreciate, I've really, as a result of listening to your answers and the way you articulate yourself, I've learned so much more about you, the person. And I have to say I'm quite fascinated by you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, your questions and, and your natural gift of inquiry bring a lot out of a person. Well, I appreciate that. I really, really do. And uh, I just want to say, once again, I'm very grateful for the gift of your time. I want to thank loyal listeners for once again tuning into my show, Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. I go live every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Contact Talk Radio Network. If you have any show topic ideas or you have any, uh, if you wish to appear as a prospective guest yourself, kindly reach out to me at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. McDonald is spelled M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. Alternatively, you can reach me by email at lisamcdonald13 at gmail.com. And I just want to say love and gratitude to everybody. I really appreciate all the rates, the reviews, and the subscribe subscribing to my podcast over on iTunes. We're now up to well over 100,000 podcast subscribers, and I'm not even in my second year of doing this. So uh, that wouldn't be possible if it weren't for the caliber of guests such as Mitch Horowitz. So I want to thank you, Mitch, for contributing towards that and uh, giving us something to really ponder and think about outside of just the subject of Neville, but challenging ourselves to the degree that we think and what we entertain and what we consume and what we emit. Uh, I, I just want to say thank you. This was a lot of takeaways and breakthroughs for me for this particular interview. So thank you, Mitch. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to be here. So I want to thank you again, listeners. I wish you all my best. This is Lisa McDonald live with you from Dundas, Ontario, Canada, wishing you a very safe day and a fantastic weekend. Love and gratitude to all. Take care and all my best. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. Visit her at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.